And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconciled.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with special guest, John Carvalho, president of Mergers and Acquisitions Advisory Firm of Stone Oak Capital. John is also the co-founder of Divestpedia, and, which is a leading online educational resource for mid-market mergers and acquisitions. Thank you for being on the show today, John. Did I get your last name right or did I butcher it? Just then? <laughs> no, you got it right. You got it right. I Thanks said so. it and I was like, I don't think if I said it the same thing, I said it earlier when he told me it was okay. <laughs> it's like, man, did I do that again? So... I want to thank you for being here. This is going to be fun. You've got a lot of experience. It looks like you go back 20 plus years in the merger and acquisition space. And it looks like you've been in that mid-level. I have to tell you, not to plug anything here, but we own The Hub, which is a curated newsletter for small, medium businesses. And we do a thing inside of The Hub every week. We're like teaching a lesson. We do quote a lot. Of, I send a lot of links to your Vestipedia because it's just a great resource for like if somebody's been asking, like, what's a roll up? You guys have great definitions and terms and explanations on those sites. So a lot of times we we feature articles when you guys put stuff out. Yeah, I know. That's awesome. I appreciate that. And that was probably took me and a partner of mine about five years to really get that content going. So I, I wrote a number of those definitions late night. And for me, not only is it kind of, I'm proud of kind of the database that we've built and the educational tool that we've built. But also it was good, it was good learning, right? Like it just sharpens the knife, writing those definitions and really thinking through what is a roll up? What is an acquisition thesis? What is trailing 12 month EBITDA? How is it calculated? So all those articles, I think not only are useful for the community, but also have made me a better kind of acquisition advisor. It's interesting as I think I spent as much time on that as I did paying mentors and studying other stuff on your site, learning this, I came from. The tech industry moved into marketing, got a master's degree in marketing, then went into one of my clients was acquiring real estate. So I ended up with a real estate firm. And a funny thing that how I got into the space is I hired a performance coach. One of my real estate firm that I had created was starting to kind of falter. I couldn't tell if it was me just getting burned out or if it was the market was shifting, which is what I thought it was. So I hired a performance coach and he's like, you should be playing a bigger game, but buying residential real estate, which was cool. It was an ego boost to have somebody go, you're too smart to be playing this small game, go play something bigger. So I started looking to merge and acquisition and there's an entire different language here. There are things I didn't know existed, maybe because of my 
grassroots Oklahoma upbringing, had no idea what a family office was. I knew what private investors were. I used them all the time to borrow money for houses. And I did some time in the venture capitalist world, starting companies and tech companies and stuff in the Silicon Valley. But there's a million terms inside of this that aren't used anywhere else. And I use your site quite a bit to like, whenever you Google, what is something the Vestpedia shows up is the answer to a lot of that. So I probably attribute a good percentage of the learning of this space to those definitions you wrote. So that's really, yeah, well, that that makes me really proud. So I'm super appreciative and grateful of you, you finding that resource useful. And truthfully, I mean, the words change all the time, right? Like the definitions and there's new words, like just before we hopped on here, you were talking about acquisition entrepreneur, right? That wasn't a term that was around even two years ago. And there's so many ancillary words that are equal to that fundless sponsor, sometimes just individual private equity, independent sponsor. Like there's so many words that kind of mean the same thing, but you know, there's just the flavor of the day and acquisition entrepreneurship is kind of it for that specific definition. But yeah, it's cool. It keeps me, keeps me always learning, having to be a person that's putting out that education out there. Let's take a step back. How did you end up in the world of mergers and acquisition? I mean, this isn't something I kind of just give you the 50 second view of how I ended up randomly ended up into this, this field of space. Funny is I went straight from like big real estate investment firm buying many houses to getting mentored by a couple of gurus on what this space was. And one of the first things that we did is we created a roll up, which is probably too big of a project coming right out the door. <laughs> but that was a baptism by fire. I got named a chief marketing and sales officer for a big, I say in our world, big. We were looking to exit at about 500 million marketing roll up where we were rolling up marketing agencies. And uh, cut that story short, yeah. a year and a half into it, we had about, I think it was like 26, 27 agencies under LOI. People were starting to sign them and two of the partners split off and bought the rest of us out. So we kind of had a coup at the top <laughs> and it was either sell to them or sue them. And it seemed more logical at the time. How did you end up in this space? What's the story behind John, man? How did you come to be the president and an owner of a, an advisory firm? Yeah. I mean, my story is not as exciting as yours. So I went through kind of a more kind of typical road, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. where I graduated from university with a business finance degree accounting major, went into an accounting firm, became kind of a professionally designated accountant, knew that I probably didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So found a position within kind of a larger organization. It was Deloitte actually. So I worked at Deloitte in their corporate finance group for about 10 years, but knew that I, I had kind of an entrepreneurial, just kind of bug that I wanted to explore. So broke off and started my own firm and just kind of went at finding clients. Through that journey of being on my own, I was able to create Divestopedia with a partner um, who was the founder of Investopedia. So he was a local guy here, had SEO expertise and just the expertise of building websites. So he and I partnered together because we knew that there was kind of this necessary education that was needed for this lower middle market M&A world. And then from there, I did some acquisitions myself. I've been kind of an advisor in this space. I've also been an owner in this space. And then, you know, I just continued to build my M&A advisory practice. So pretty boring story of going from kind of professional working for somebody to just working on my own, but always kind of doing M&A advisory and building kind of this M&A community through Divestopedia. It doesn't sound boring to me at all. I mean, the fact that you started out at Deloitte 
built a foundation for you that, I mean, college is great, but if your degree in, in business is anything like my master's degree, your real education is when you hit the ground. I jokingly tell people my MBA gave me a great dictionary in my head or encyclopedia of terms and definitions. It wasn't until I got to the real world where I realized, one, an MBA in marketing, marketing MBA doesn't make you a great marketer. It makes you a great employee for Coca-Cola and the big guys out there, right? When it comes to marketing small to medium businesses where you're you're not playing so much the branding game, but you're playing the, like, we got to turn ads into dollars fast. I think that first job or that first set of companies you work for out of college really gets to show you how to apply it all. And I've interviewed probably three or four people now that had spent some time at Deloitte. And most of them are out, I guess, just because of the nature of who I'm interviewing, they're out on their own doing really cool stuff. So you said you did some acquisitions already. What type of, like, in what space? Just sometimes I find randomness in this. Were you in your lane? Were they advisory firms or what did you guys acquire? Yeah, so I had a couple of different partners. So one one partner and I bought an environmental drilling company. It was probably a sub $10 million deal. I wasn't running it. We had somebody that was running it. And really unfortunate story where we had a fire in our facility that burnt down half of our fleet. It really made it challenging for us to continue to run the business. So we had to sell off the equipment and just pretty much shut the business down. Now that I look back on it at the time, it was very stressful. You're thinking, okay, how am I going to continue to run this business? You have some dollars invested in this. So you're worried about how your investment's going to turn out. But for me, it made me realize that even in a real kind of unfortunate situation or scenario like that, like I I had some pretty good skills in terms of like winding the business down, being Mm -hmm. able to liquidate the assets and sell what the remaining portion of the business off to a strategic buyers. So that really go back to your, what you said about real world experience, like all the stuff I was doing at Deloitte was cool, but it couldn't ever have given me the experience that that one experience of winding down a business making sure that all kind of stakeholders were fully repaid in that scenario. So that was one business that we acquired. And then a second business that that I acquired was with another partner in the oil field services. And we actually did a roll up of a number of companies where we went from like our first acquisition was 5 million. And then we acquired it in various different kind of like scenarios and contexts. We acquired 17 other entities, took the business public in 2019. I became the interim CFO for a bit of this publicly traded company, realized that's not what I wanted to do long-term. I'm still an investor in that business, but just wanted to roll back into the advisory side of things. So, and again, that experience of actually, when you're doing an acquisition or you're doing a deal for a client, although you want to really do your best for your client, it's that personal kind of impact that you have in taking on debt, signing personal guarantees, actually being the one that puts your signature on any sort of purchase agreements. Like there's a, there's just a different level of kind of commitment, a different level of understanding that you really need to go through. And truthfully, all of that experience of winding down a business of acquiring 17 businesses, I think have just full circle made me a better advisor in really understanding what my clients are going through now. So again, just really humbled of the experiences that I've had and now what I'm able to deliver is, is a pure advisor that's been through it personally. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've interviewed quite a few. I've had more than, I've interviewed over 150 advisors and uh, professionals in this field so far. 
And I've probably had that many people reach out to me and ask to be on the show that I've told no. And it's mainly just because they're an advisor with one year experience, a good college degree and no closes, right? I think a lot of people enter the advisory world a little too early, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I think you do bring something to the table if you've done 17, 18, 20 deals that you've been on the hands-on side, plus all the ones you've advised on. There's a level of empathy and knowledge that goes with you've been there. It just doesn't exist. You might have the knowledge. You might be able to learn that from a book. You might be able to learn that from other helping other people. But that natural, like knowing where somebody is and the stressors they're dealing with, I don't think you can get that feel from only playing on the advisor side and never being in the field. All of these things are our learnings, right? The divestopedia, the actually doing it yourself. Like I'm a student of this game and I'm always learning. And that's why I love having conversations with guys like you and, and others. And I've been so blessed to me have that kind of like opportunity through divestopedia, through some of the things that I've done to, to be able to really learn from awesome mentors. So I'm always growing, I'm always learning, but those, ex those personal experiences of me actually acquiring businesses, I think accelerated that learning in 10 years is like stuff I couldn't learn in 30 years of advising businesses. So I agree. Let's take a step back. Let's go back to that. You're at Deloitte, you're entering into this world of mergers and acquisitions, you're cutting out on your own. What do you know now, or what would you learn in a different order? I guess I'd say, what do you know now that you'd, you wish you'd have known on day one? or at least earlier on in the process, there's some lessons learned that, at least in my experience in life, there's some lessons learned that come later in the game where you go, man, if I'd have learned that first, we'd have done a lot, we'd be here a lot faster. So uh, what are the value lessons learned you learned along the way you wish you'd have learned earlier? I think a good one, that's a really good question, by the way, but I think early on starting my advisory practice, like I had lots of things on the go. I was starting Divestopedia. I was buying businesses. I was trying to run this M&A advisory firm. There was a lack of focus and not that I would have given any of those experiences up, but it really trying to do th three big things probably made each of them like not as great as they could have been on their own. Right. So I think the focus piece is important and I'm glad to have a second chance of just kind of like cleaning off my plate and really focusing back on building an advisory firm. So I'm really excited about that. And the other thing I learned too, is when I first started, I wanted to do this value creation stuff. So there was a few people talking about it, but nobody really understood it. It wasn't really exit planning, but it wasn't really like M&A advisory work. It was really helping people to build value within their business and somehow find a way to partner with these people for either equity or some sort of form of like compensation for the upside. And I remember talking to a mentor of mine and he said th this very simple thing. He's like, why are you swimming upstream? And it made me realize that I was kind of always going against the grain, trying to find something that I thought was a better way of doing it things, but it wasn't really necessarily how the market saw it. And it wasn't necessarily how the market compensated people for doing it right so i realized that the value creation although might be a really good way to help business owners kind of increase and maximize value it's not something that's normally accepted in the marketplace and for that reason like it's hard to build a business around that if you think you have the greatest product in the world but nobody's willing to kind of pay you for it or engage you for it cool. then is it really that good so that, that's probably a lesson learned that i wish i would have kind of followed earlier. It's funny is that it, that goes with all markets, all products, everything. People buy what they want, what, not what they need. <clears throat> I have the same 
mentality you do is like, I'll see something, go, man, you know what they really should be focusing on is X, Y, Z. And then I go out and try to get them to buy that, but they don't want that. They want the ABC. They want the other yeah. end of the spectrum. They want the other end of the, they're looking for apples and oranges. And I'm like, but you really need this weird watermelon over here. You're like apples and oranges yeah. won't do any good. And it happens. And I still catch myself. The other thing you said that resonated with me is doing too many things. I'm an idea guy. I love coming up with new ideas and stuff. And I see things inside of the space and I have to keep telling myself, no, no, no. You're focused on providing the best content you can in the space and owning, owning resources that provide that content. So buying, buying resources that provide that content. The second I want to go, okay, this, we really could use an app that does this, or we, there's really a cool AI tool. I should probably have somebody build that does that. All I'm doing is distracting from the things that I that are working and the things that are where I should be spending my attention on. It happens to, I think it, there are two different people in this merger and acquisition space at our level. By the time they're at your level, they're probably geared towards more towards high-end operations. But on the small to medium merger and acquisitions, you got the entrepreneur who is the guy who wants to create, wants to solve problems and stuff. And then you have the operator. He wants something that's organized, making money, and uh, that he can grow in a systematic approach. And often those are two different people. I tend to be more on the, the entrepreneurial side, right? I'm looking for, if you look at my track record, even in the tech space, somebody's like, what did you switch jobs every two years? Because everything that was broken was fixed. I would go to a company, fix their, all their, their data center or their tech or get everything, systems and processes put in place. And there were no outages happening, nothing bad anymore. I get bored and look for the next big mess. So I'd go to the next company that, you know, once everything's up and running and smooth and there's no crazy meetings to solve big problems, I got bored pretty quickly. And the same things happened to me in the mergers and acquisition spaces. I need, I need that constant problem to solve that constant thing. But one of the reasons I like interviewing you guys is I get to live through your experiences. I get to to hear the problems you saw and stuff. And just on that note, there's a really good book that kind of changed my view on that. Cause I'm like you, I'm that entrepreneur and I keep on like bouncing from idea to idea. And it's rocket fuel is the name of the book. Yeah. So bringing in like an integrator, I hate to call myself a visionary because I've met guys that are visionaries and you know, by their measurement, I'm a hundred percent visionary. They actually have a test. I'm like 80 yeah. and 90 on the visionary and like 20, 30 on the, uh, the other side of it. So. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. call myself so, a visionary in the scope of the great CEOs that were visionaries. I'm no uh, Richard Brunson. I'm not going to take you to space, right? I, I'm the same way, right? But I have this like where I keep on like bouncing from idea to idea and different projects, different projects. I think that's why I like the world of M&A is because it's project to project. Right. I kind of have that short year focus where, okay, let's get these deals done. They take about anywhere from six months to a year and then let's move on to the next one. But I have realized the importance of, hey, if I want to build something, you need to partner with somebody that has a little bit of a different mindset that is about systems and processes right. and be systematic about putting the things in place that you need to build the infrastructure to, uh, to actually grow. Yeah, I have the book right over here and I've had him on my show. I've had the CEO of EOS okay. on the show. Anybody I want to learn from, I put them on here. And I think it's critical to mergers and acquisitions to have systems and processes and stuff. So I did interview the CEO of EOS and I interviewed the CEO or the lead trainer for the great game of business. If you've ever read that book, okay. the great game of business might've predate the rocket fuel, but it's about systems processes. And it's a little more geared towards teaching the employees their Every single employee knows their impact on the overall company. They all know how to read basic financials. 
and they also know how turning their gear or making their widget impacts the bottom line. So you've been through, you've had one merger and acquisition thing where you quite literally had to have a fire sale, right? Like, okay, major fire. And first thing I said is like, why wasn't everything insured? So you went literally from fire sale to you built a, a fairly decent sized roll up, right? 17 is no joke. Doing 17 acquisitions in probably what, a few years, like five, 10 years? Seven, Seven years. Seven years. Wow. So that was absolutely no joke. If you think of, like I told you, we did a, a roll up. We had a team of eight full time. Nobody, we, we weren't doing anything else but that pulling 60 hour, 50, 60 hour weeks, eight of us. And then we had advisors and people lined up. So we probably had probably a total of 12 to 15 people to get done what we did in such a short time frame. But uh, it's a lot of work. A lot of people don't understand like 17 companies and that's more than one company per year. That's really impressive. It, it was, I'm not going to lie. It was a stressful time in my life and kind of, there was lots of moving parts and lots of things I would have learned. Lots of things I did learn and would have done differently, yeah. kind of looking back on it. But it was, uh, again, wouldn't trade it for anything. It was an awesome experience. And I think, again, it's made me a better, a better M&A professional. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize when they hear like, okay, they did 17, I mean, 17 deals. They probably don't understand. That means you probably looked at 1,500 freaking companies, right? There's a difference between how many did you look at and how many LOIs are actually said, how many rounds of due diligence did you guys go through, and then how many extra closed. It's actually, I mean, that would be extremely stressful. I know. Yeah. The pace was probably a little too frantic. Yeah, maybe that's one thing I would have done. I would have slowed it down a yeah. bit, but again, we kind of, we're on a roll. And actually this is kind of like another phase of my business that I think I want to explore is there's lots of people that are doing great sell side stuff and Stone Oak is one of those firms as well. But the buy side is an area that I think needs just as much education as the sell site does in terms of like improving processes and creating uh, really good acquirers, people that know how to generate deal flow, people that know how to quickly evaluate opportunities, people that know how to put LOIs together, people that know how to do effective and efficient due diligence to close deals. Like the, I think the real issue that, that I'm trying to solve and help with is uh, educating the sellers so they're ready to sell, but also educating the buyers is just as important and as necessary. What I think is a real social economical issue in society today with all of these kind of like business owners that need a succession and need to monetize the wealth that they built. In their businesses. So you guys are primarily sell-side advisors. What does a great buyer look like to you? I mean, because that's something we, I mean, you talked about a little bit right there. But uh, somebody walks to the door, you've got a client you've been working with for probably at least six months to a year to get them ready to this point. They're starting to entertain offers and stuff. What is a great buyer to you? What are the, not just having money in the bank. I mean, other than they can stroke the check, what makes a great buyer in the eyes of a sell-side advisory firm? Yeah. So just a clarification, we do buy-side as well. We're probably doing about 50-50 oh, okay. right now. It's sell-side. And it's something I can get into here in a bit, but even compartmentalizing the buy-side to do just deal sourcing for companies. So that's, we talked about focus, but this is a new business that I'm starting. I'm just providing deal sourcing for corporate acquirers and family offices, but that's something we can chat about. But I think a buyer, a real ideal buyer, obviously is going to have the capital resources to be able to do it, right? So you can easily kind of assess whether they are able to access the capital. Either they have kind of the cash in the bank or they have kind of the financial wherewithal to go out and find financing and 
do a deal. But I think the other thing with a buyer that, that would give me a lot of comfort would be that they come to the table relatively quickly with what a deal structure looks like. And this was the great thing that I learned from my partner where he and I did this roll up. So the first acquisition that we did, I introduced him to the opportunity. We went and we met the, we went out and we had kind of the first initial conversation with the owner. And within five minutes of sitting down with this owner, my partner had a deal kind of like structured, hammered out. He had talked about valuation and they shook hands on it. I walked out of that Whoa. deal with my mind and thinking like, how the heck did you come to like move this quickly and get to a point where we were able to structure a deal and kind of evaluation of this buyer? So it it's just, I think a buyer recognizes that doing an acquisition, there's risk. So understanding that concept and understanding that there are going to be ways to mitigate the risk, either through the deal structure itself, through kind of what you can do within the legal kind of structure and the purchase and sale agreements, yeah. or what you're going to do with operations after the fact. So I think a lot of buyers that, that kind of cross my desk and the ones that, that I don't put as much like faith or commitment on are buyers that, that just come back and keep on asking questions after questions, but they don't actually start showing how they're going to structure an acquisition and what kind of value that they're willing to, to put on the table. So that, that frustrates I think the same problem exists in the small to medium-sized businesses, right? A lot of the people come to this space from other areas. Either they're operators, like they, they're an employee at a company, they run the whole division, and now they're ready to go out on their own. Like, or they come from academics where they're search funders and the school told them so. But a lot of these guys come from worlds like real estate investing like myself and somebody told them, hey, there's a bigger game out there and they start looking at that. Problem is they start talking to companies before we really know what we want. And I think corporations do the same thing too. They've heard that the best way to grow or they maybe they should look at acquiring another company to grow. Instead of spending the time and research to go, okay, what does that look like? How do I formulate a great offer? What exactly am I looking for? They just start talking to, they start talking to advisors who have sellers under contract and that's distracting to both sides. I think, I think some homework ahead of time of going, what exactly it is I want and what does a good deal look like for the seller? What does a typical deal look like in this market? How are these things done? Knowing all that, just get going more likely to allow them to hit success. Like in our space in the small to medium size businesses, they say over 20, only 20% of the businesses ever listed for sale get sold. And a lot of people bring that on their broker. I think it's both sides. I think a lot of the reason a lot of those don't sell is the acquirers are wasting the broker's time. Both, right? And I still do lose a lot of sleep when I have a client that I'm working with and just having maybe some difficulty in finding the traction on it, thinking like, okay, maybe I haven't brought the right buyers to the table. How do I really kind of maybe expand the search for the acquirers? But it falls back onto, it also falls back onto the seller. Like maybe there are some attributes or something within that business that is making it unattractive to the market. We talked about this earlier where what you're selling is just not what buyers are wanting to buy. But you're right. I mean, it goes both ways. Maybe it falls on the seller, but it also falls on the buyer where there, there needs to be just concept of being a deal maker, of going out and of just wanting to buy businesses and learning how to actually execute on that, right? I think we have a lot of book smart people 
that, that are trying to do this, but we don't have a lot of deal makers that are willing to, to take risks and understand kind of that risk back risk aspect of doing transactions. And that's one thing that my one partner really taught me. And he is just so good at assessing and analyzing risk and really contextualizing it and saying, okay, like here's the risks that I see. Here are the probabilities of these risks ever coming to fruition, right? I think Seneca that said that most of what we worry about is imaginary and it's not going to happen. Really putting a probability around what's the possibility of these risks coming to fruition. And then if they did, what are the things that I would do? So he was just so great at rationalizing through all of that. And I think that's what made him a great deal maker. It's interesting. One of the things you said earlier that kind of clicked in my head is I didn't realize or didn't click until just a second kind of aha moment is that the selling businesses and the standard marketing term product market fit have a correlation, right? There's you, the product market fit in most products is, does the market really need this? There's actually a buyer side, seller side where, and I think it's a little more now than it was maybe two years ago, maybe a year ago when the economy was a little differently. I think buyers are more selective. They're looking at less risk. They're looking at, they're still doing deals. There's still money out there to be, to do deals. But I think from what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is people are tightening up, going for more solid companies, more companies with higher revenues, less risk companies and industries that have industries that are a little recession proof with that tightening up, making sure you have a product that fits what the market's looking for and knowing how to work that is I think critical. And from that advisory role. Do you see the market tightening up like some of the other advisors and stuff I've had on here? And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Are you an entrepreneur or business owner thinking about your exit strategy? Or maybe you've just landed a business through acquisition and the books just aren't the way you need them to be. Let me tell you about Reconciled, your dedicated partner for industry-leading virtual bookkeeping and accounting services. Reconciled pairs you with skilled professionals who empower you to grow your business and prepare for success, whether that's your exit or taking that new acquisition to top performance. Imagine having high-level financial management without expanding your team. From bookkeeping to CFO services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions as they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconcile invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconcile.com today and let them get your books in order. Reconciled, making bookkeeping a breeze. That's Reconcile.com something really cool coming up. It's called the Business Acquisition Virtual Summit, July 26th through the 28th. Join Jeremy Harbour, Roland Fraser, Carl Allen, and 20 other leaders in mergers and acquisitions. The event is the 2023 Business Acquisition Virtual Summit. How to Exit is proud to sponsor this 100% online event packed with three full days of expert talks from the world's most recognized acquisition entrepreneurs. Register now at businessacquisitionsummit.com. Be sure to check out their option to do the upgrade to VIP virtual networking so you can meet and talk with the other participants. Don't miss out now on the M&A event of the year. That's businessacquisitionsummit.com. 
Yeah, the market definitely is tightening up, like rising interest rates, uh, the, the automatic finance makes it just makes it more difficult to do transactions. But maybe going back to this concept of risk, right? Like, I mean, there is added risk. There are also these levers that you can pull, right? You might not pay as much. You might structure the deal where there's more seller financing or earnout, right? So it's really understanding the levers to pull in terms of like these risk things that are coming up. I think you can really do deals in any sort of environment, but I feel like people are so risk averse. And this is going back to your question on kind of buyer profile. So somebody that I see that is so risk averse, they're not willing to do a deal that's fair. That to me is an immediate put off for a buyer that comes to the table. And I'll call them out on it. I'll tell them that, hey, like what you're proposing is not fair. Put yourself in the seller's shoes. I mean, would you accept an offer where you're trying to lowball somebody and just get a really amazing business at a less than fair price? I don't think that's something that you can really successfully continue to do transactions over and over with that philosophy. So given the current state of the market, and I know our market and your market kind of mirrors each other. So what happens in America ends up happening in Canada and maybe a little bit on the reverse. We feed off of each other. We do a lot of exchanges. I can't say for sure, but I don't know in history if there's been a time where Canada was having a booming economy and we were in a depression and we're the other way around. We kind of I think we do mirror each other. That said, how long do you think this, I'm going to ask you to put your forecasting hat on. Is this a temporary thing or are we entering, are we just entering into it? Or are we coming out of it? Or what do you see the current economic cycle as? I think yeah, Rob Slee had, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Rob Slee, but he should be another guy to interview. He's the uh, godfather, grandfather, whoever, whatever kind of relationship you want to put it to, to kind of this private capital M&A world. But he had like this 10-year transfer cycle that he talks about. I think right now that there's a lot of risk and a lot of uncertainty out there. Rising interest rates, kind of like economy, slowing geopolitical risks, this transition from kind of like oil. We're, we are a resource kind of sector business. We're transitioning our economy where I'm located. I mean, we're transitioning into this kind of tech base and we're growing some tech companies within the region that I, I work in. But really, we're seeing that there's this kind of shift away from natural fuels and natural resources to kind of the electrical world and EVs and all of that. So I think there's this shift in the world that's people are starting trying to get some footing in terms of how this is all shaking out. I think one of the biggest drivers, though, is this transition of aging business owners that need to create some sort of liquidity and need to kind of monetize the wealth that they built in their businesses. So that continues to grow, then the demand for the demands for businesses that need to be acquired is there as well with all of these kind of like acquisition entrepreneurs and all of this capital is out there. So I think although like valuation ranges might change because there's rising interest rates and there's challenges to access capital, the actual volume of deals that are happening are going to continue to going to continue to be there. There just needs to be a shift in, in how the deals get done. Yeah, it's scary, actually. Here in the United States, over 50% of all employees are employed by a small to medium business. Somebody in that realm up to where you guys are doing deals and below. And like, there's just none of the buyers around. If you look at what's happening like in other areas of the world, I was reading articles, I think a couple of weeks ago now, about Japan. Japan's aging market is so bad. They're actually 
giving away multi-million dollar companies to successors. Uh, their culture is a little different than ours. Their legacy and honor is so important that they really don't want to shut the things down and they really want to make sure that customers and their legacy is taken care of way more than I would say here in the United States. We're more likely to shut a business down than we would be to just give it away. But they're at the point now in, in Japan where a lot of companies are just like looking for that great successor to take over. And they're talking about like they're being given businesses. I don't know if it's truly $0 given, but you know, they're talking way under valuation just to get somebody to acquire it. I think we're running into a world where if we don't train more buyers and we don't train more companies on acquisitions, that the economies of Canada and the United States and stuff are going to be hurt because of those baby boomers. They own so many companies right now. They're hitting 65, 70 in the next 10 years, 20 years. They're not, nobody lives past a hundred. It's not going to be long before either they're going to either retire. There's going to be a succession. Everybody succeeds, right? You either die in your chair or you hand the business over to somebody else, but eventually you're no longer the CEO. What do you see inside of the space of do you see that people are going to step up? You think there's going to be more acquirers in this space, or you think it's just going to be an environment where a lot of things just go away? Yeah, I think, yeah, and this is why I've been on this mission of Divestopedia, educating the sellers. I'm with you. I think the world needs not more buyers. I think they need better buyers, right? There's lots of buyers out there. I get emails. I probably get about 10 emails a week of people telling me of what kind of acquisition types that they're looking for that I just purely ignore because need a little bit more than just in sending out an email to try to find and build trust. You still, there still needs to be a building of trust when you're looking to buy a business. It's very right. personal. But that said, I think educating the deal makers, again, are just as important as educating the sellers. And I guess back to what I was talking about before, I think one thing that we've, we have been doing a lot of buy side work for corporate acquirers, but what we're seeing is in where the challenges lie on the buy side work is that you had said it before, you need to look at like a thousand potential businesses to get down to like four or five that you think that you're going to acquire, right? That just takes time, energy, effort, resources, people to do that. And a lot of buyers don't understand that funnel that's needed, right? To really be right. able to get in front of targets and to execute on this strategy of being a corporate acquirer. So they'll look at 10 and nothing will happen. They'll get frustrated and they'll just throw their hands up in the air and say, oh, this doesn't work. Like this acquisition strategy is not something that works or it's not working for me. And that's where I saw a real opportunity to use and leverage some of the M&A networks that I've built through Divestopedia. I have a LinkedIn group that's called Mergers and Acquisitions Network. It's the biggest M&A network on LinkedIn. So using and leveraging kind of like tech-enabled communities and more tech enabled processes to automate that, that outreach and that searching is what I'm doing now. So I've actually started another firm. It's called Deal Institute Inc. with a partner that has that tech enabled capabilities to now be that outsourced service provider for these corporate acquirers that really want to be committed to growing through acquisition. I think it requires the commitment and I think it understands the, it requires the understanding that this is a long-term game, but this is how the game is played. Looking at thousands of opportunities to land on like five or six that you actually get closed. There's so many integral parts. A lot of people say like, there's a funnel. It's like, yeah, it's more than a funnel. You actually have to have a highly efficient funnel. And like what you're creating, a lot of people don't get is 
not just a funnel to showcase key acquisition targets to buyers, but the systematic process of weeding out what's not, right? There's a systematic, number one, you've, as many years as you have in there, I like to call it a built-in BS meter. You actually have this natural gut feel when you're going through these, that you can eliminate a lot of the stuff that is out on the market fairly quickly, just because you know they're not ready. And then there's a system and process you guys are building to qualify and only present to your clients things they should really acquire. I mean, like this isn't something that like you could or might or, hey, here's something interesting. If you're running a, a buyer side search fund or a, or a search company where you're finding acquisitions, you're putting stuff on a platter and saying, here's something that really meets what you're looking for. Here's what you ask for. Here's exactly, we're recommending you buy it. That is unbelievably valuable, especially with somebody with your experience. Yeah. And what you said about the BS meter is actually a really relevant thing. And that's what I felt that we got really good at. That process of us getting in front of targets, being able to say, here's what is important to us, figure out what's important to them. And to, there's a lot more than just fit, right? Anybody could do a Google search and say, these five companies would be perfect fits for us to acquire, but are they ready to acquire are they at the right valuation? Can you get them on a call to have the conversation? Like what would be kind of a win-win structure for the seller to, to want to be acquired by the corporate acquirer or the acquisition entrepreneur, whoever it is, right? So being able to assess that really quickly and dismiss it if it's not, if the transaction um, variables to close a deal aren't there, then move on and go to the next yeah. one. So it's not just about finding the perfect fit. It's finding the perfect fit for a deal that you can actually get closed. And that's what we got really good at. And that experience is what we hope to bring with the Deal Institute and for corporate acquirers. People hear me talk about that marketing roll up and like they hear me say that we had over 200 marketing agencies on the phone in less than 200 days. Like we, but what they don't get is for the nine months prior to that, we didn't talk to a single one. We spent nine months researching the industry. What are their pain points? What are they looking up for in being acquired? What are they getting offered by private equity? We really did a lot of analysis and spent lots of hours into what does a great deal look like for them and how does that work for us? And we structured something when we presented it to them, like, yeah, I'll get on the phone with you. We want to chat. You know what? I think the other real opportunity for corporate acquirers is just, if you think of it logically, like I have clients that say they get reached out by private equity firms all the time. And it, most business owners that I talk to will dismiss that and say, you know what? I don't want to talk to a private equity. They don't have experience in my industry. I don't know if they're just on a fishing expedition or maybe if they've taken one call, it's been a bad experience. So they'll never take another private equity call again. The thing with a corporate acquirer, like most business owners will take that call, right? If we reach out to somebody and say, hey, we're working with a large I don't know, construction company in your industry that's looking to grow through acquisition, we've identified and targeted you as a really good fit to our acquisition strategy. Will you take a call and hear out our proposition? Most business owners will take that call. So I think corporate acquirers need to understand that they are most times the logical buyer and it's easier for them to execute an acquisition strategy because of that advantage that they have where they can get in front of business owners a lot more easier than a private equity firm can than definitely an acquisition entrepreneur can who's looking for yeah. one business and it's their first business that they require. 
corporate acquirers so much easier to execute on the strategy than kind of the other buyers at the table. Yeah, it's actually, it's difficult for somebody to go come from a world of never acquiring anything and want to be the logical safe pair of hands for a corporation to hand over their business to, to where I can see in your, what you were just saying there is a strategic buyer's got a better chance of getting that call. I've been in positions where we knew that private equity were offering to buy companies like ours, like when I, when I was in the tech industry and stuff, where they wanted to come in and invest, but they wanted control and all this other stuff. There's a callousness, especially in this, I think anything in the small to medium sized businesses where legacy is important, everything like that, the private equity world just doesn't appeal to them. They feel for even some of the marketing agencies, when they realized we were investors, like we're not a big marketing firm that just wants to pull them under. We were investors and we had a strategy to grow them for three to five years and then we're going to sell the whole package. That was a big obstacle to overcome for a lot of the small companies. They just weren't interested. I think that the if you're the big construction company, you're talking to a smaller construction company, it's more logical. They see that as a safer pair of hands than a private equity calling them and going, we're buying 15, we're buying 15 construction companies over the next five years and we're going to sell it for a profit. We'll give you a little money now and a little bit more money later. Are you interested? I know they don't ever say that, but that's the story that's simplified down to its core essence for a private equity company. The challenge too, is that, I mean, a lot of these business owners are looking for an exit, right? They're looking for like, Hey, how do I get out of this business in a relatively short period of time? Take my chips off the table. A corporate acquirer provides that, that exit a lot. The path to getting there is a lot clearer than it is with a private equity group or an acquisition entrepreneur or somebody else. Right? So. Yeah, the private equity is like, we want to buy you, but we want you to hang around for the next three years. And yeah. the majority of your checks going to be at the other end of it through earnouts and, and other stuff. Now, I've interviewed some people that have done really well in that world. I interviewed Adam Coffey, who actually wrote a few books on it. I think it was a heat and air company, got acquired multiple times and ended up with a billion dollar exit. And he got a piece of it. He got paychecks along the way as it acquired. Those do happen. And for some people, it appeals for them to play that game. For other people, that's just, like you said, they're ready to retire. They're ready for their next project. If they're entrepreneurial, they're ready. They got this other idea. Most of the time, they've already got the idea rolling on the side and they need to focus, right? They're like you and me. They might have two or three projects and yeah, this one's going pretty good, but it's not my core focus. It's time to sell it, hand it over to somebody that can run it right and focus on the things that I really am passionate about in the moment. Or just moving on to the next phase of life. Like I built yeah. this business. It's created a lot of wealth for me. Now I want to enjoy it. I want to spend time with my kids, my grandkids. Maybe I want to travel. Maybe I want to buy some property in another place in the world. So going into a, a private equity firm where you're selling 60%, that private equity firm is going to say, hey, like here are growth targets. And this is what we need to achieve over the next five years. Like it's just at a, a person that's at a different phase of life. And we've mentioned it before, but you know, there's a lot of business owners that are at that retirement phase that want to move on and a corporate acquirer presents a logical opportunity for them. And this is why I'm beating this drum of saying, Hey, corporate acquirers, Hey, it's awesome for as a growth strategy. There's a McKinsey report out there that shows being a systematic and programmatic, um, acquirer creates more value than any other type of M&A kind of strategy. So go out and buy a lot of these small businesses, get really good at it. It's a lot easier for you to do than it is for, again, private equity firms or acquisition entrepreneurs. So cool. What's your biggest win? It don't have to be monetarily either. Like name something you've done in the last 10 or 15 years that you consider 
your biggest win, your biggest gain of knowledge, or maybe it's a monetary win or something, but what's your biggest win that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, Divestopedia is definitely, I'm proud of the community I've built there. I, I get emails all the time of people thanking me for an article that was written or definitions that, that have helped them. So that that is very humbling for me. And that's something that I'm super grateful that I've had the opportunity to be able to build. And our roll-up, I look at it and I think I like to kind of check my ego a bit. It was hard and challenging and I think it's made me a better advisor. So I look back on it with a lot of just thankfulness, a lot of gratitude with being able to build that. And it was a good win. Like obviously building a business, 17 acquisitions, taking it public, it was Definitely something that I don't know that I'll have an experience like that again. So Divestopedia, how is it monetized? Is it just through ads or you guys get lead generation from it or how does it benefit you? I'm curious here because I, I have a, a follow-up question with that one. Yeah, it's mostly ads right now, but again, kind of linking it to this deal institute, really using the network to help put rocket fuel on, on corporate acquirers acquisition strategies. So most of the, our ideal client for the Deal Institute is going to be a corporate acquirer that that has potential to acquire globally because we can use our global network to be able to kind of source and really uncover great opportunities. That's something I didn't ask you. Let's do that real quick because we're hitting the top of the hour. Let's make sure everybody knows where you're located, what areas you specialize. In. Let's talk about Stonut Capital and all the different things you got working on right now. I know you're up in Canada, but what areas of the world do you service? What sectors of the market do you play in or don't play in? Who's your ideal customer type of thing? Yeah, I know. I appreciate the platform to be able to, to share this with your audience. So Stone Oak, we're middle market transaction size of 10 to $150 million. Industry kind of agnostic. I feel like the execution of the deal kind of trumps the any sort of industry expertise. But just given the region I've been, a lot of my work that I've done has been kind of in the industrial sector oil field services, mining, manufacturing, construction. So those spaces have been just because of where I'm located have been the ones that have, have come across and I've worked on. Stone Oak will now focus primarily on the sell side, again, of those deal sizes. You know, I'm working on a couple of transactions right now in, in kind of the manufacturing and in the resource sector. So really cool opportunities kind of in that $50 million space. So those would be the deals that would be our best target and our best kind of client for us. In terms of the Deal Institute, again, that's primarily focused on done-for-you services on the deal sourcing side for corporate acquirers and family offices. Because we have the benefit of using our communities, our global communities with Divestopedia and the Merger and Acquisition LinkedIn Group Network, we're really, our, our ideal client would be a corporate acquirer that has kind of a North American or global kind of acquisition aspirations. Those would be the two things that we're focused on. And then of course, with Divestopedia, we're always looking for media partnerships. We have some great webinars and some great guests that come on very specific acquisition, M&A kind of middle market topics. So we're always looking for guests that want to join us, sponsorship opportunities that want to reach our network. That's awesome. Awesome. We have that little curated newsletter that uh, focuses on the probably right underneath you guys at $10 million deals and below. But uh, we often feature articles you put out and we have an event calendar on at the bottom of it. So we're always looking for events and stuff that are happening, mostly for the acquisition entrepreneur, the ETA guys and stuff like that, service funders and that type of stuff. But uh, I'll make sure we 
my team, I have a, a couple of assistants and a partner in this. We actually bookmark your your site and we'll dig through there and see if you have events and stuff we could feature too. That would be cool. Yeah, I'd love to, uh, love to find ways to work together. Awesome. So how do you want people to reach out to you? If they've heard something interesting today and they think, man, I really want to work with John on this, or I have a business that meets his needs, would you be interested in helping me out? What's the best way you want people to reach out and connect with you? Yeah, LinkedIn is always the easiest. People can connect with me on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy to find, I think, on there. And then just DM me on there and we'll find a way to connect. I'll make sure that link's in the show notes too, so everybody can go to howtoexit.com, look at the show notes, it'll be on there. Or they can go, the YouTube show notes will have it too. So if you're driving down the road right now and you <laughs> don't know the spelling of the name, or if you're hearing this on the podcast, don't pull over or don't cause a wreck trying to write this down. We'll put it in the show notes. When you get to a safe location, pull it up. You'll be able to click on a link and get to John. Last question I always like to ask is if somebody can remember maybe two or three things from the show today, what would you want them to be the takeaways from you? What do you want them to remember from you? Yeah, that is a great question. I think maybe just this one, like for anybody that wants to acquire a business, like be a deal maker. Don't, don't like throw away the books, throw away kind of all maybe some of the things that you've read and put an offer on a business that, you know, you feel comfortable with, that you feel like you can stand behind and that you feel is fair. I think fair transactions get done, right? Warren Buffett said he wants to buy wonderful businesses at fair prices. And I think that's why he's been able to do it, right? Is because people obviously know his reputation, but he pays a fair price for these businesses. So find, find sellers that are willing and open to transacting at fair value and put those fair values in front of them. Don't like go and, and grind for more information over a period of five months, right? Like find a business, if you like it and you want to acquire it, put a fair value and a fair offer in front of the buyer or the seller. Awesome. Thank you. What's an ideal time frame for you? Like somebody from the day they introduce you to the day they should have an LOI in front of you. What is ideal? Like, uh, again, this was one of our advantages, but we got so good at it that like within two weeks we could have an LOI in front of somebody. I don't think it, it's not rocket science. It's not hard to do. You can always, if you put an offer and it's totally offensive to somebody, you can always go back and say, okay, well, I apologize. Maybe I didn't have enough information to make a fair offer. So tell me, give me more information so I could put a more fair offer on the table or I can evaluate if it's, if it continues to be a fit, but that fear of offending somebody or that fear of like overpaying or that fear of like, just not really understanding what a deal structure that gets a deal done. Like we got to get over that and we got to move transactions forward a lot quicker. Yeah, I can see how that, I think it plays against this deal saying the first person that puts an offer in loses. That's not true. You got to have a starting point. If you guys are waiting for them to give you a number, I've seen too many cases where People call me and they're talking to me like, hey, I'm just trying to get the guy to give me a number of what he wants for a business. And I was like, well, just put an, a fair offer in front of him then. And he's like, well, I don't want, what if I offer more than he would, what his idea was? And I was like, yeah. I just told you to, it's a fair offer. Put a fair offer in front of him. If it's fair to you, then it's okay. But what if he wanted, what if his idea is lower and I could get a, like, that, that hangs up too many people. Everyone thinks that the, the first one who speaks loses. And it's not true. It's absolutely not true. Could you overpay? Yeah, you could. But if you really know your stuff and you do your valuation, if you overpay and it's still a fair deal, does it matter? Well, in, and I know we're at the top of the hour, but the ability to then mitigate risk around like, what if you did overpay? We overpaid for lots of businesses, right? But we found ways to mitigate it and we found ways to kind of find solutions in the back end. And they weren't easy. None of this is easy, but right. we did it. So I think you just have to go in with that mindset that, hey, I'm going to pay a fair price, like you said. 
And if things go wrong, which they will, how am I going to fix it? Well, I want to thank you for being here. Any final parting things, anything you want to say before we call it a, a day? Yeah, I just appreciate the opportunity to share my story with your audience. And thanks for this, Ron. Yeah, it was good. And we'll call that a show. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now